Hey, this is Talk with Rollshare. I'm Sophie Smallwood, co-founder of Rollshare.com. Today, we talk with Claudia Henderson, Chief Human Resources Officer at the Boston Media Group. She shares her view on what it takes to drive change inside organizations and how sharing roles could potentially challenge biases, drive more leaders to appreciate diversity, and upskill individuals with utility skills critical to an organization. Here is Claudia as she explains the start to the journey that led her to where she is today. It's funny, I got into the field that I'm in today sort of by accident, if I'm honest. My master's degree is actually in public policy and management. And I was in grad school in New York City thinking that when I got out, I was going to kind of put on my cape and go to a nonprofit and save the world. (laughs) And then realized that I also had to do things like pay rent in New York City, which made that particular dream kind of be put on hold a little bit. I was working doing quality improvement work in a city agency in New York City. And somebody that I worked with or went to grad school with rather said to me, you know, a lot of what you do in terms of coaching teams and helping get to the root cause of why certain business challenges exist sounds a little bit like what our human resources folks do at Johnson & Johnson. And I didn't even know what human resources was, to be honest. This was back in 2000. And he said, you know, there's this HR rotational program and they're interviewing. So why don't I connect you with the leadership over there and see what you think? So I went in for a set of interviews and the rest was sort of history. So so I, I literally sort of fell in by accident. I was at Johnson & Johnson for about five years, both in the pharma and supply chain space. Came to Boston, I've worked in financial services, I've worked in the tech world, both large and small companies. And it's been a fun ride. I mean, for me in my own career, I've never been focused on trajectory necessarily. For me, as I've considered opportunities, it's been about what's the challenge that that particular organization is trying to solve for or set of challenges. How complex are they? Because the more complex in my mind, the better and more engaging. And what's the culture or the context that that work is going to take place in? And if there's sort of alignment on all of those things, then it's something I'm likely to say yes to. And today, what is it about human resources that keeps you going in this industry? Clearly, you fell into it, but you seem to have really flourished in it. So what is it specifically about what you do today that really keeps you there? Actually, tomorrow is my one-year anniversary here at Boston Globe Media Partners, and, and people know us for the Boston Globe. That's our premier product, obviously, but which is a newspaper, and at least in the United States, local newspapers in particular are a bit of a dying breed. And so the idea coming in the door was help the executive team figure out what our transformation needs to look like so that we can make the journey from being sort of local newspaper print product to really transforming into a true digital media business. That complexity alone, trying to solve a problem that really hasn't been solved for in any other, at least the US market, was an enticing challenge. So for me, that's part of what energizes me. Doing that in an organization that has a really well-established brand was also part of what was attractive. It's almost like you're operating as a startup in many ways, in terms of the pace, in terms of the kinds of everyday strategy development that we're doing, the visioning that we're doing. So you're 
engaged in work that feels like a startup, but in an established institution, which is kind of a hard combination of factors to find in other opportunities. You have an exciting career, you have the family life as well. What's your trick? It's funny. I remember going back to my J&J experience, the first interview I had with what I would now consider potentially my best boss ever. I remember her saying, and I didn't have children at the time, I said to her, so how do people manage work-life balance here? And her response to me very quickly was, work-life balance is a myth. (laughs) And I just remember being so shocked. And she said, what I mean by that is not that we don't support people in their efforts to try and feel fulfilled, but at any given day, you're going to expend energy in a bunch of different ways. And sometimes it's going to be more in one space than another. And that really resonated with me. And I feel like on a day-to-day basis, I have similar conversations with folks now and sort of feel that way in my own life. So I try to dispel the notion that balance as a concept exists on a day-to-day basis, in part because it feels so either or and so binary. What I say to myself and certainly to other folks is life in general is sort of a big picture. And there are going to be days where you, you know, extend yourself more in one area and days where you extend yourself more in other areas. And you might achieve something that feels like balance, but I think it's important that we sort of redefine that concept altogether, again, because it is so binary. I think of it as, how can I try and live a life in a way that sort of brings me joy and contentment? It makes me feel fulfilled. And I try to impart that same kind of thought process with my team, certainly with the folks that I manage. And I think for me in my own career, it's been a matter of me sort of saying as an individual, here's what's important to me. Here's what I need, be it from a flexibility standpoint or, you know, whatever else to feel like I can feel fulfilled. I have to make choices about how I spend my time. Having said that, I absolutely think that there are ways that organizations can create tools that help facilitate allowing people to feel fulfilled. I go back to my experience again at J&J. That was actually the first organization that I was in where I saw, for instance, a job sharing arrangement in place and worked really, really well. I hadn't even heard of it or thought of it before. So I do think that we can, as a matter of establishing infrastructure from an HR perspective, figure out ways to, as I said, sort of help facilitate people knowing and being able to exercise. It's interesting you had this experience way back when at J&J and you still remember it. It's funny because I also remember the very first time I heard about a job share. It seems to be one of those things that you just can recall. Can you tell me a little bit about that particular job share? Do you remember the role and the level and what they did together? I do. Maybe six months into my experience at J&J, I started working with the supply chain arm of the organization. And I was working, as I mentioned, in an HR capacity. So I had clients who, in this particular example, were working to oversee the customer service area within the manufacturing world, uh, the distribution world, excuse me. And there were two folks at a manager level, but at at J&J, just for reference, the title of VP, for instance, is reserved only for the folks who are literally like at the top of the company, right? Mm -hmm. So like their head of human resources is a vice president. Mm -hmm. So director level is 
high and that's the highest level of folks kind of at an operating company level. So manager level was also relatively high. There were people managers, they had responsibility day-to-day operational responsibility and oversight for large groups of people. So these two women, there was an internal need, right? The two of them were high-performing, high-potential individuals who both had young children, were similar in terms of their I would say the sort of core values that they emulated most and in some ways were similar in their skill set. And so they both asked in separate conversations with their management if any sort of job share option would be available. And because that manager knew that both of them were looking for that opportunity, you know, they talked in a really intentional way about how they could design a job to accommodate them both. I worked with them for a good probably year into that arrangement. And I was very impressed with the two of them and thought that they actually made it work nicely. So you were in essence, a business counterpart that had to work with them. How did you find that experience? You know, I was working with these two individuals were very high performing. And by that, I mean, they were both incredibly tenacious they, everything they did was for the betterment of the organization and would work until a job got done. So they had a very similar sort of work ethic um, and a way of sort of approaching their work. And the two of them were very aligned in that sense. And so I think that was helpful, right? And, And I think definitely contributed to how smooth of a dynamic existed there. So I think a lot of the success of that particular arrangement had a lot to do with how they came at it. And I'd have to believe that anyone who'd be looking to enter into, again, in an intentional way, into a work relationship like this would probably have the same desire to be as tenacious and as dedicated, right? Because they want it to work. They were very clear with their everything from like their out of office notices on email and on their telephones uh, around like who was going to be in on which days. So I never had a problem reaching one or the other person. They had ways of making sure that they stayed connected. I don't know the details of those ways. I mean, I have guesses, but that both of them would be copied on any email communication if I was going back and forth with them about particular employee issue or something else, I was, it, it was easy for me to just include both of them. And so they were very clear about how to make sure other people understood how to get in touch with one or the other on any given day, which I think is one of the challenges that organizations might naturally sort of think of when they think of an arrangement like this, like, oh, I don't know if we can make that work because how would you know that you could get the person, but they, they made it work. And I, I don't think that should be a limiting factor. You've just shared some really interesting tips on how to actually go about finding a good match. Um, if you're looking to do a job share, I think, you know, this aspect of tenacity, dedication, having shared value skills, a strong work ethic, it all is very consistent with the information I've gotten from other individuals who today are sharing roles at relatively senior levels. What is your vision of workforce diversity and leadership in the next five years? What do you think it will take to get there? It's interesting. I probably would have had a different answer to this question two years ago. (laughs) 
frankly, than I do today. I feel like, you know, again, I obviously speak with a lens of being in the United States. I think there are a lot of good and bad things about where we are as a society right now. I think that the Me Too movement and for sure the the election in 2016 here, I believe created a platform in many ways for talking about and appreciating the concept of diversity in a way that I don't know was even allowed before. Having been a Black woman in executive circles for a while now in leadership positions, I know I certainly didn't feel, in some organizations, you actually felt uncomfortable even saying the word diversity. (laughs) And I just, it was sort of a taboo concept that made people defensive. And now, while it might still make people feel defensive, organizations not only sort of appreciate it as kind of a business imperative, but they are also realizing, because they're seeing it on a day-to-day basis, that buying power is being driven in many ways by the extent to which you know companies look like the organizations that they purport to serve, right? Consumers aren't allowing companies to not see diversity as a business imperative. So what I would have said a few years ago before Me Too and the 2016 election, I think, is, gosh, that it's going to take a long, long time for us to get to a place where we're able to appreciate and actually see some diversity reflected at the senior most levels, not just in organizations, but in boards. But I think those two factors have actually accelerated this concept in a way that I'm really quite excited about. And again, I'm saying this as a Black woman in Boston, um, which is not uh, notorious necessarily for being a very welcoming place. I'll just put that out there. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited about, even though it certainly comes with bad, I am sort of excited about where we are as it relates to that particular concept in business right now. Yeah. If that makes sense. A hundred percent. When I think about what you just said here and the Me Too movement and you know the election in the U.S., it seems to me that a lot of the change that's happened at the corporate level mm-hmm. could have happened earlier, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. but only was nudged to the point where it is today because of an internal movement, in essence. The people had to make it happen. Yeah. Is that what it takes, in your opinion, to actually mm-hmm. change the culture of a company? Or does it come from above? So I think it starts with people... I think too about sort of the technology world and how it's changed over time and this sort of concept of networks and a network effect and the notion of social media as a collaboration tool. Like people listen to, and it's it's so basic really when you think about it, right? Like we listen to our peers and our colleagues and our friends and we trust their opinions and seek out their advice because we care most about what they think. So I very much believe that it starts with people internal to organizations sort of demanding. And then I think leadership has to allow that sort of challenge and debate, challenge to culture, and has to be willing to put a mirror up and really reflect on the extent to which they are acting on the values that they espouse. Because I think most companies, generally speaking, would at least say out loud that it matters to them. But I do, I think it starts with crowds and is facilitated by leadership. That's what I think. Give me the first word that pops to mind today when you think of job sharing. Alignment. 
going back to the example I was mentioning before, the two people who I saw really role model the way a job share could work, like fundamentally, it had everything to do with them being aligned. So it's been around for quite a long time, job sharing. Mm-hmm. But yet it seems as though people have not heard of it and or they have those aha moments like we both had when you mm-hmm. hear it for the first time and you're like, how did I never hear this before? Yeah. Why do you think that is? Honestly, I'm not actually convinced people haven't heard of it at senior levels. I think some organizations resist it given the potential, at least perceived financial implications of those kinds of arrangements and the fear of knowing kind of how to manage those kinds of employment relationships. So in the case where you have organizations that actually offer job sharing as one of their benefits, adoption even in those organizations is relatively low. Why do you think adoption Mm -hmm. is low when that benefit is actually available to employees? I've seen it used most often for women in particular who'd like a degree of flexibility so that they can feel, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, some degree of balance, right? They want to be able to spend some time with their small children. And I I recognize it's likely used in a myriad number of different ways. That's how I've seen it used most often. And I think historically, I, I think it's hard sometimes for people to contemplate this notion that if I step back a little bit, right? So if I, for instance, in those cases where somebody might be going from full-time to a job share, it may in their minds feel like they're stepping back and you know, think to themselves, gosh, how long is it going to take for me to sort of get back to where I was once the arrangement is over? I think there's a psychological component that you know, folks like you setting up the kind of company that you are That's something that will be important to solve for potentially. And I also think, again, from a gender perspective, if it does require that you step back a bit in terms of salary, it takes a long time (laughs) to sort of get your salary to a place where it is today and, and contemplating reverting back from that, I think, again, has a psychological impact that's that's hard. And it may be hard for both women and men. But again, when I've seen these sorts of arrangements, it's been primarily for women. So I think those are some factors that may contribute to lower adoption. And you're right. There's definitely a persona that seems to be attached to any kind of flexible work, really. Yeah. And I think that in order for us to progress and to make it more acceptable and perhaps for people's fears to be addressed and so forth, we need more men to embrace these types of flexible arrangements. How can we do that? I mean, how do we get men on board? Well, I think that's coming. If you think about, at least in my observation, is that it's only been, I would say in the past, I don't know, maybe five years or so, that it's even become more socially acceptable. For instance, if we talk about the parenting piece again, that it's become sort of socially acceptable for men to be either at-home parents or not the person who's in the primary breadwinning role. So I think this is something where it's a matter of time, right? Like social norms are changing. And I think that this is something that men will jump into if made available. I believe that. If you had a senior individual inside of your organization today who had been with the Boston Globe Media Group for a while, 
and had mm-hmm. an incredible amount of knowledge and had a proven record and really needed flexibility. Do you think that you would entertain and do you entertain the ability for individuals to share roles? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd like to believe that, especially to the extent someone has been a valuable contributor, has demonstrated to the organization both a commitment to the company and to our success, I would like to believe that we would be open to that. Now, obviously, just like any other organization, you'd have to sort of figure it out financially, right? Like, I feel like that's the key driver for most organizations, especially ones that are becoming leaner over time. Having said that, interestingly, we're actually in the process right now of going through uh, union negotiations with our largest bargaining unit here. They're called the Guild, and they represent our newsroom. That's our core product. So super talented individuals. The contract itself had been in place for quite a while. And I was surprised to see language in that union contract that specifically refers to the concept of job sharing. And I was surprised just because the contract has been around forever. So we actually, as a matter of contract, have those arrangements baked into our current CBAs. Now, to your point around adoption, to my knowledge, and again, I've only been here for a year, but there's no one taking advantage of that. So clearly as an organization, you know, we've demonstrated the willingness to entertain these kinds of arrangements, but your adoption point is a really important one because as of today, anyway, uh, we don't have folks actually exercising that option. So when it comes to leadership diversity, do you think that it role sharing in the future could potentially be an avenue to driving greater diversity at the leadership level? I think the approach could certainly help people appreciate diversity in many ways if they're job sharing with someone who is not completely like them, right? Like once you work closely with someone who isn't exactly like you, your biases can be challenged. And so I think in many ways that could be a great result of greater adoption of a job share arrangement. You know, I also think organizations could definitely use it to attract and or retain people who may want some sort of part-time experience and actually have the ability to pursue other passions outside of just a part-time role. You know what I mean? So, you know, the key is to like making sure that companies don't use approaches like this in ways that, you know, aren't nefarious. Like I wouldn't want to see organizations do this and say like, oh, anyone who's part-time doesn't get healthcare benefits. So let's have a bunch of people job share so that we can get around those kinds of costs. It obviously has to be carefully managed. Today, when a role is posted for any open job spec, typically you're looking for a single applicant, right? So in the case where a role potentially is opened up to job share candidates, you could open up the pool and diversify candidates to individuals that perhaps never would have applied. And in essence, they are together meeting more of the job specifications that a single individual could. I kind of like the idea of and I think organizations are going to need to do more of this, of when folks walk in the door, yeah, it may be true that someone only has a portion of the skill set required to drive success, but a lot of skill sets can be developed over time, right? And so I think what more organizations should start to focus on is creating more kind of utility players, because the other thing, especially as organizations get more lean, a real challenge, at least I've found it in my experience, 
is that you've got lots of single points of failure, right? So you've got a, a bunch of really strong skills in one person. And if they walk out the door, you're in trouble. And so to the extent, especially an arrangement like this one could, if you've got two folks walking in, each with kind of 50% of what's required, so long as those folks have a willingness to not just retreat back to what they know, but there's a willingness to learn what they don't know that maybe is resides in the other person, that I think that could be a win-win for the individuals involved in the job share, but also for the organization to the extent they care about that utility player concept that I just mentioned. I love that. I spoke with a, a very high-performing job share team at Microsoft recently, and mm-hmm. they said exactly that. Together, they in essence help coach each other. They both have yep. diverse skill set, and it's like there's a learning and development built into their partnership. What are you looking for in candidates today? Is it that perfect match or are there other things that you're looking for? So there's me personally, and then there's, you know, the world generally. (laughs) My own personal philosophy is I actually think this will become more true across the general population. I think we're going to care less moving forward about some of those core technical skills than we do making sure someone is an actual culture fit and has a mindset that is open, that is willing to learn, that demonstrates capacity to adapt and be nimble. But, you know, from a current state standpoint, I would say when folks walk in the door here, they probably have, I don't know, a good 70% of what an actual job spec calls for. And I would suggest that the extent to which someone will thrive and move closer to that 100% over time depends, I would say, almost exclusively on how well they're led. I think leadership really matters. How do you think roles will be shaped in the future, say 10 years from now? I think probably roles will be likely a little more kind of team-based, maybe a little more integrated so that the degree of differentiation sort of across people might be less. My guess is that from a technology standpoint, in terms of the way we produce and deliver information, will probably continue to be fluid and change over time, I would suspect. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular technology today that you think is really disruptive? Not that I would put in the category of disruptive, necessarily. Positively um, disruptive. <laughs> <laughs> I am someone who actually, I think of that concept as a, as a good thing. Anything that makes people think about anything in a new and different way, like there's power in that. To me, it's a positive term, no matter. And that was Claudia Henderson, Chief Human Resources Officer at the Boston Media Group. She made me think. Though sharing a role offers the benefit of flexibility to employees and for companies' retention, fuller skill sets, diversity of thought, more than full-time coverage, etc., Perhaps the message should also focus on diversity appreciation and upskilling of individuals. People in a role share have to, almost literally, walk in the shoes of those different from them. Also, the upskilling that occurs between partners is a way to ensure the company from losing critical utility skills. I'm hopeful companies who offer job share contractually will start promoting shared roles proactively. But until then, it has to start with people asking for it equipped with education to overcome perception blockers. Someone who wants flexibility has their good reason for it. 
And it's nothing new that losing a valuable employee is more expensive than trying to retain that person. In fact, according to the American Center for Progress, replacing senior roles can cost up to 213% of that person's salary. Thanks for listening and join us for the next episode of Talk with Rollshare.